0: Chapters 11 and 12 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Ruslax, Finland. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 11 The Influence of the Sexes on Vegetation. From the preceding examination of the spring and summer festivals of Europe, we may infer that our rude forefathers personified the powers of vegetation as male and female, and attempted, on the principle of homeopathic or imitative magic, to quicken the growth of trees and plants by representing the marriage of the sylvan deities in the persons of a king and queen of May, a and bridegroom and a bride, and so forth. Such representations were, accordingly, no mere symbolic or allegorical dramas, pastoral plays designed to amuse or instruct the rustic audience. They were charms, intended to make the woods to grow green, the fresh grass to sprout, the corn to shoot, and flowers to blow. And it was natural to suppose that the more closely the mock marriage of the leaf-clad or flower-decked mummers aped the real marriage of the woodland sprites, the more effective would be the charm. Accordingly, we may assume, with a high degree of probability, that the profligacy which notoriously attended these ceremonies was at one time not an accidental excess, but an essential part of the rites, and that in the opinion of those who performed them, the marriage of trees and plants could not be fertile without the real union of the human sexes. At the present day it may perhaps be vain to look in civilized Europe for customs of this sort absurd of for the explicit purpose of promoting the growth of vegetation but ruder races in other parts of the world have consciously employed the intercourse of the sexes as a means to ensure the fruitfulness of the earth. And some rites, which are still, or were till lately, kept up in Europe, can be reasonably explained only as stunted relics of a similar practice. The following facts will make this plain. Four days before they committed the seed to the earth, the peepiles of Central America, kept apart from their wives, in order that on the night before planting they might indulge their passions to the fullest extent. Certain persons are even said to have been appointed to perform the sexual act at the very moment when the first seeds were deposited in the ground. The use of their wives at that time was indeed enjoined upon the people by the priests as a religious duty, in default of which it was not lawful to sow the seed. The only possible explanation of this custom seems to be that the Indians confused the process by which human beings reproduce their kind with the process by which plants discharge the same function, and fancied that by resorting to the former they were simultaneously forwarding the latter. In some parts of Java, at the season when the bloom will soon be on the rise, the husbandman and his wife visit their fields by night, and there engage in sexual intercourse for the purpose of promoting the growth of the crop. In the Leti, Sarmata, and some other groups of islands which lie between the western end of New Guinea and the northern part of Australia, the heathen population regard the sun as the male principle by whom the earth, or female principle, is fertilized. They call him Upulera, or Mr. Sun, and represent him under the form of a lamp made of coconut leaves, which may be seen hanging everywhere in their houses and in the sacred fig tree. Under the trees lie a large flat stone, which serves as a sacrificial table. On it the heads of slain foes were and are still placed in some of the islands. Once year, at the beginning of the rainy season, Mr. Sun comes down into the holy fig tree to fertilize the earth, and to facilitate his descent, a ladder with seven rungs is considerately placed at his disposal. It is set up under the tree and is adorned with carved figures of the birds whose shrill clarion heralds the approach of the sun in the east. On this occasion, pigs and dogs are sacrificed in profusion, men and women alike indulge in a saturnalia, and the mystic union of the sun and the earth is dramatically represented in public, amid song and dance by the real union of the sexes under the tree. The object of the festival, we are told, is to procure rain, plenty of food and drink, abundance of cattle and children, and riches from grandfather's son. They pray that he may make every she-goat to cast two or three young, the people to multiply, the dead pigs to be replaced by living pigs, the empty rice baskets to be filled, and so on. And to indulge him to grant their requests, they offer him pork and rice and liquor, and invite him to fall to. In the Babar Islands, a special flag is hoisted at this festival as a symbol of the creative energy of the sun. It is of white cotton, about nine feet high, and consists of a figure of a man in an appropriate attitude. It would be unjust to treat these orgies as a mere outburst of unbridled passion. No doubt they are deliberately and solemnly organized as essential to the fertility of the earth and the welfare of man. The same means, which are thus adopted to stimulate the growth of the crops, are naturally employed to ensure the fruitfulness of trees. In some parts of Amboina, when the state of the clove plantation indicates that the crop is likely to be scanty, the men go naked to the plantations by night, and there seek to fertilize the trees precisely as they would impregnate women, while at the same time they call out for more clothes. This is supposed to make the trees bear fruit more abundantly. The Baganda of Central Africa believe so strongly in the intimate relation between the intercourse of the sexes and the fertility of the ground, that among them a barren wife is generally sent away because she is supposed to prevent her husband's garden from bearing fruit. On the contrary, A couple who have given proof of extraordinary fertility by becoming the parents of twins are believed by the Baganda to be endowed with the corresponding power of increasing the fruitfulness of the plantain trees, which furnish them with their staple food. Some little time after the birth of the twins, a ceremony is performed, the object of which clearly is to transmit the reproductive virtue of the parents to the plantains. The mother lies down on her back in the thick grass near the house and places a flower of the plantain between her legs. Then her husband comes and knocks the flower away with his genital member. Further, the parents go through the country performing dances in the gardens of favored friends, apparently for the purpose of causing the plantain trees to bear fruit more abundantly. In various parts of Europe, customs have prevailed both at spring and harvest, which are clearly based on the same crude notion that the relation of the human sexes to each other can be used to quicken the growth of plants. For example, in the Ukraine, on St. George's Day, The 23rd of April, the priest in his robes, attended by his acolytes, goes out to the fields of the village, where the crops are beginning to show green above the ground, and blesses them. After that, the young married people lie down in couples on the sown fields, and roll several times over them, in the belief that this will promote the growth of the crops. In some parts of Russia, the priest himself is rolled by women over the sprouting crop, and that without regard to the mud and holes which he may encounter in his beneficent progress. If the shepherd resists or remonstrates, his flock murmurs, Little father, you do not really wish us well, you do not wish us to have corn, although you do wish to live on our corn. In some parts of Germany at harvest the men and women, who have reaped the corn, roll together on the field. This again is probably a mitigation of an older and ruder custom designed to impart fertility to the fields by methods like those resorted to by the pipiles of Central America long ago, and by the cultivators of rice, in Java at the present time. To the student who cares to track the devious course of the human mind in its gropings after truth, it is of some interest to observe that the same theoretical belief in the sympathetic influence of the sexes on vegetation, which has led some people to indulge their passions as a means of fertilizing the earth, has led others to seek the same end by directly opposite means. From the moment that they sowed the mice till the time that they reaped it, the Indians of Nicaragua lived chastely, keeping apart from their wives and sleeping in a separate place. They ate no salt and drank neither cocoa nor chicha, the fermented liquor made from maize. In short, the season was for them, as the Spanish historian observes, a time of abstinence. To this day, some of the Indian tribes of Central America practice continence for the purpose of thereby promoting the growth of the crops. Thus we are told that before the sowing the maize, the Kekchi Indians sleep apart from their wives and eat no flesh for five days, while among the Languineros and Cajaboneros, the period of abstinence from these carnal pleasures extends to thirteen days. So amongst some of the Germans of Transylvania it is a rule that no man may sleep with his wife during the whole of the time that he is engaged in sowing his fields. The same rule is observed at Kalotaszeg in Hungary, the people think that if the custom were not observed, corn would be mildewed. Similarly, a Central Australian headman of the Kaitish tribe strictly obtains from marital relations with his wife all the time that he is performing magical ceremonies to make the grass grow, for he believes that the breach of this rule would prevent the grass seed from sprouting properly. In some of the Belenician islands, when the yam vines are being trained, the men sleep near the gardens and never approach their wives. Should they enter the garden after breaking this rule of continence, the fruits of the garden would be spoilt. If we ask why it is that similar beliefs should logically lead, among different peoples, to such opposite modes of conduct as strict chastity and more or less open debauchery, the reason, as it prevents itself to the primitive mind, is perhaps not very far to seek. If rude man identifies himself in a manner with nature, If he fails to distinguish the impulses and processes in himself from the methods which nature adopts to ensure the reproduction of plants and animals, he may leap to one of two conclusions. Either he may infer that by yielding to his appetites he will thereby assist in the multiplication of plants and animals, or he may imagine that the vigor which he refuses to expend in reproducing his own kind will form, as it were, a store of energy whereby other creatures, whether vegetable or animal, somehow benefit in propagating their species. Thus from the same crude philosophy, the same primitive notions of nature and life, the savage may derive by different channels a rule either of proglifacy or of asceticism. To readers bred in religion which is saturated with the ascetic idealism of the East, the explanation which I have given of the rule of continents observed under certain circumstances by rude or savage peoples may seem far-fetched and improbable. They may think that moral purity, which is so intimately associated in their minds with the observance of such a rule, furnishes a sufficient explanation of it. They may hold with Milton that chastity in itself is a noble virtue, and that the restraint which it imposes on one of the strongest impulses of our animal nature marks out those who can submit to it as men raised above the common herd, and therefore worthy to receive the seal of the divine approbation. However natural this mode of thought may seem to us, it is utterly foreign and indeed incomprehensible to the savage. If he resists on occasion the sexual instinct, it is from no high idealism, no ethereal aspiration after moral purity, but for the sake of some ulterior yet perfectly definite and concrete object, to gain which he is prepared to sacrifice the immediate gratification of his senses. That this is, or may be so, the examples I have cited are amply sufficient to prove. They show that where the instinct of self-preservation, which manifests itself chiefly in the search of food, conflicts or appears to conflict with the instinct which conduces to the propagation of the species, the former instinct, as the primary and more fundamental, is capable of overmastering the latter. In short, the savage is willing to restrain his sexual propensity for the sake of food. Another object, for the sake of which he consents to exercise the same self-restraint, is victory in war. Not only the warrior in the field, but his friends at home will often bridle their sensual appetites from a belief that by so doing, they will more easily overcome their enemies. The fallacy of such a belief, like the belief that the chastity of the sower conduces to the growth of the seed, is plain enough to us. Yet perhaps the self-restraint which these and the like beliefs, vain and false as they are, have imposed on mankind, has not been without its utility in bracing and strengthening the breed. For strength of character in the race, as in the individual, consists mainly in the power of sacrificing the present to the future, of disregarding the immediate temptations of ephemeral pleasures for the more distant and lasting sources of satisfaction. The more the power is exercised, the higher and stronger becomes the character, till the height of heroism is reached in men who renounce the pleasures of life, and even life itself for the sake of keeping or winning for others, perhaps in distant ages the blessings of freedom and truth. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 The Sacred Marriage 1. Diana as a goddess of fertility We have seen that according to a widespread belief, which is not without a foundation in fact, plants reproduce their kinds through the sexual union of male and female elements, and that on the principle of homeopathic or imitative magic, this reproduction is supposed to be stimulated by the real or mock marriage of men and women, who masquerade for the time being as spirits of meditation. Such magical dramas have placed a great part in the popular festivals of Europe, and based as they are on a very crude conception of natural law, it is clear that they must have been handed down from a remote antiquity. We shall hardly, therefore, err in assuming that they date from a time when the forefathers of the civilized nations of Europe were still barbarians, Herding their cattle and cultivating patches of corn in the clearings of the vast forests, which then covered the greater part of the continent, from the Mediterranean to the Arctic Ocean. But if these old spells and enchantments for the growth of leaves and blossoms, of grass and flowers and fruit, have lingered down to our time in the shape of pastoral plays and popular merrymakings, is it not reasonable to suppose that they survived in less attenuated forms some two thousand years ago among the civilized people of antiquity, Or, to put it otherwise, is it not likely that in certain festivals of the ancients we may be able to detect the equivalents of our May Day, Whitsuntide, and Midsummer celebrations? With this difference, that in those days, the ceremonies had not yet dwindled into mere shows and pageants, but were still religious or magical rites, in which the actors consciously supported the high parts of gods and goddesses now in the first chapter of this book we found reason to believe that the priest who bore the title of king of the woods at nemi had for his mate the goddess of the grove diana herself may not he and she as king and queen of the wood have been serious counterparts of the merry mummers who play the king and queen of may the witsuntide bridegroom and bride in modern europe and may not their union have been yearly celebrated in a theogamy or divine marriage Such dramatic weddings of gods and goddesses, as we shall see presently, were carried out as solemn religious rites in many parts of the ancient world. Hence there is no intrinsic improbability in the supposition that the sacred grove at Nemi may have been the scene of an annual ceremony of this sort. Direct evidence that it was so there is none, but analogy pleads in favour of the view, as I shall now endeavour to show. Diana was essentially a goddess of the woodlands, As Ceres was a goddess of the corn, and Bacchus a god of the vine. Her sanctuaries were commonly in groves. Indeed, every grove was sacred to her, and she is often associated with the forest god Silvanus in dedications. But whatever her origin may have been, Diana was not always a mere goddess of trees. Like her Greek sister Artemis, she appears to have developed into a personification of the teeming life of nature, both animal and vegetable. As mistress of the greenwood, she would naturally be thought to own the beasts, whether wild or tame, that ranged through it, lurking for their prey in its gloomy depths, munching the fresh leaves and shoots among the boughs, or cropping the herbage in the open glades and dells. Thus she might come to be the patron goddess both of hunters and of herdsmen, just as Silvanus was the god not only of woods but of cattle. Similarly, in Finland, The wild beasts of the forest were regarded as the herds of the woodland god Tapio, and of his stately and beautiful wife. No man might slay one of these animals without the gracious permission of their divine owners. Hence the hunters prayed to the sylvan deities, and vowed rich offerings to them if they would drive the game across his path. And cattle also seems to have enjoyed the protection of those spirits of the woods, both when they were in their stalls and while they strayed in the forest. Before the gaios of Sumatra hunt deer, wild goats or wild pigs with hounds in the woods, they deem it necessary to obtain the leave of the unseen lord of the forest. This is done according to a prescribed form by a man who has special skill in woodcraft. He lays down a quid of beetle before a stake which is cut in a particular way to represent the lord of the wood, and having done so he prays for the spirit to signify his consent or refusal. In his treatise on hunting, Arrian tells us that the Celts used to offer an annual sacrifice to Artemis on her birthday, purchasing the sacrificial victim of the fines they had paid into her treasury for every fox, hair and roe that they killed in the course of the year. The custom clearly implied that the wild beasts belonged to the goddess, and that she must be compensated for their slaughter. But Diana was not merely a patroness of wild beasts a mistress of woods and hills, of lonely glades and sounding rivers, conceived as the moon, and especially, it would seem, as the yellow harvest moon, she filled the farmer's grains with godly fruits, and heard the prayers of women in travail. In her sacred grove at Nemi, as we have seen, she was especially worshipped as a goddess of childbirth, who bestowed offspring on men and women. Thus Diana, like the Greek Artemis, with whom she was constantly identified, may be described as a goddess of nature in general, and of fertility in particular. We need not wonder, therefore, that in her sanctuary on the Aventine, she was represented by an image copied from the many-breasted idol of the Ephesian Artemis, with all its crowned emblems of exuberant fecundity. Hence, too, we can understand why an ancient Roman law, attributed to King Tullus Hostilus, prescribed that, when incest had been committed, an expiatory sacrifice should be offered by the pontiffs in the grove of a Diana. For you know that the crime of incest is commonly supposed to cause a dearth. Hence it would be meet that atonement for the offence should be made to the goddess of fertility. Now on the principle that the goddess of fertility must herself be fertile, it behooved Diana to have a male partner. Her mate, if the testimony of Servius may be trusted, was that Virbius who had his representative, or perhaps rather his embodiment, in the king of the wood at Nimi. The aim of their union would be to promote the fruitfulness of the earth, of animals, and of mankind, and it might naturally be thought that this object would be more surely attained if the sacred nuptials were celebrated every year, the parts of the divine bride and bridegroom being played either by their images or by living persons. No ancient writer mentions that this was done in the grove at Nemi. But our knowledge of the arishian ritual is so scanty that the want of information on this head can hardly count as a fatal objection to the theory. That theory, in the absence of direct evidence, must necessarily be based on the analogy of similar customs practiced elsewhere. Some modern examples of such customs more or less degenerate were described in the last chapter. Here we shall consider their ancient counterparts. Two. The Marriage of the Gods At Babylon, the imposing sanctuary of Baal rose like a pyramid above the city in a series of eight towers or stories, planted one on the top of the other. On the highest tower, reached by an ascent which wound about all the rest, there stood a spacious temple, and in the temple a great bed, magnificently draped and cushioned, with a golden table beside it. In that temple no image was to be seen, and no human being passed the night there, save a single woman whom, according to the Chaldean priests, the god chose from among all the women of Babylon. They said that the deity himself came into the temple at night and slept in the great bed, and the woman, as a consort of the god, might have no intercourse with mortal men. At Thebes, in Egypt, a woman slept in the temple of Ammon as the consort of the god, And like the human wife of Baal at Babylon, she was said to have no commerce with a man. In Egyptian texts she is often mentioned as the divine consort, and usually she was no less a personage than the queen of Egypt herself. For according to the Egyptians, their monarch was actually begotten by the god Ammon, who assumed for the time being the form of the reigning king, and in that disguise had intercourse with the queen. The divine procreation is carved and painted in great detail on the walls of two of the oldest temples in Egypt, those of Deir al-Bahari and Luxor, and the inscriptions attached to the paintings leave no doubt as to the meaning of the scenes. At Athens, the god of the vine, Dionysus, was annually married to the queen, and it appears that the consummation of the divine union, as well as their espousals, was enacted at the ceremony. But whether the part of the god was played by a man or an image, we do not know. We learn from Aristotle that the ceremony took place in an old official residence of the king, known as the cattle stall, which stood near the prytaneum, or town hall, on the north-eastern slope of the Acropolis. The object of the marriage can hardly have been any other than that of ensuring the fertility of the vines and other tree-fruits of which Dionysus was the king. Thus both in form and meaning, the ceremony would answer to the nuptials of the king and queen of May. In the great mystery solemnized at Lesius in the month of September, the union of the sky god Zeus with the corn goddess Demeter appears to have been represented by the union of the Hierophant with the priestess of Demeter, who acted the parts of god and goddess. But their intercourse was only dramatic or symbolical, for the Hierophant had temporarily deprived himself of his virility by an application of hemlock. The torches having been extinguished, the pair descended into a murky place, while the throng of worshippers awaited in anxious suspense the result of the mystic Congress, on which they believed their own salvation to depend. After a time the Hierophant reappeared, and in a blaze of light, silently exhibited to the assembly a reaped ear of corn, the fruit of the divine marriage. Then in a loud voice he proclaimed, Queen Brimo has brought forth the sacred boy Brimos, by which he meant, the Mighty One has brought forth the Mighty. The corn mother, in fact, had given birth to her child the corn, and her travail pangs were enacted in the sacred drama. This revelation of the reaped corn appears to have been the crowning act of the mysteries. Thus, through the glamour shed round these rites by the poetry and philosophy of later ages, there still looms, like a distant landscape through a sunlight haze, a symbol rustic festival designed to cover the wild Eulysenian plain with a plenteous harvest by wedding the goddess of the corn to the sky-god, who fertilized the bare earth with genial showers. Every few years the people of Plataea in Biotia held a festival called the Little Diadela, at which they felled an oak tree in an ancient oak forest. Out of the tree they carved an image, and having dressed it as a bride, they set it on a block cart with the bridesmaid beside it. The image seems then to have been drawn to the bank of the river Asopus, and back to the town, attended by a piping and dancing crowd. Every sixty years the festival of the great Dadala was celebrated by all the people of Boeotia, and at it all the images, fourteen in number, which had accumulated at the lesser festivals, were dragged on wains in procession to the river Asopus, and then to the top of Mount Kiteron, where they were burnt on a great pyre. The story told to explain the festivals suggests that they celebrated the marriage of Zeus to Hera, represented by the oaken image in bridal array. In Sweden, every year a life-size image of Frey, the god of fertility, both animal and vegetable, was drawn about the country in a wagon attended by a beautiful girl who was called the god's wife. She acted also as his priestess in his great temple at Uppsala. Wherever the wagon came with the image of the god and his blooming young bride, people crowded to meet them and offered sacrifices for a fruitful year. Thus the custom of marrying gods either to images or to human beings was widespread among the nations of antiquity. The ideas on which such a custom is based are too crude to allow us to doubt that the civilized Babylonians, Egyptians, and Greeks inherited it from their barbarous or savage forefathers. This presumption is strengthened when we find rites of similar kind in vogue among the lower races. Thus, for example, we are told that once upon a time the Votiaks of the Malmuse district in Russia were distressed by a series of bad harvests. They did not know what to do, but at last concluded that the powerful but mischievous god Khymirit must be angry at being unmarried. So a reputation of elders visited the Votiaks of Kura, and came to an understanding with them on the subject. Then they returned home, laid in a large stock of brandy, and having made ready a gaily decked wagon and horses, they drove in procession with bells ringing, as they do when they are fetching home a bride, to the sacred grove at Kura. There they ate and drank merrily all night, and next morning they cut a square piece of turf in the grove, and took it home with them. After that, though it fared well with the people of Malmi's. It fared ill with the people of Kura, for in Malms the bread was good, but in Kura it was bad. Hence, the men of Kura who had consented to the marriage were blamed and roughly handled by their indignant fellow villagers. What they means by this marriage ceremony, says the writer who reports it, is not easy to imagine. Perhaps, as pechterov thinks, they meant to marry Kemeret to the kindly and fruitful Mukulchin, the Earth Wife, in order that she may influence him for good. When wells are dug in Bengal, a wooden image of a god is made and married to the goddess of water. Often the bride destined for the god is not a log or a clod, but a living woman of flesh and blood. The Indians of a village in Peru have been known to marry a beautiful girl, about 14 years of age, to a stone-shaped like human being, which they regarded as a god, Huaca. All the villagers took part in the marriage ceremony, which lasted three days, and was attended with much revelry. The girl thereafter remained a virgin, and sacrificed to the idol for the people. They showed her the utmost reverence, and deemed her divine. Every year about the middle of March, when the season for fishing with the dragnet began, the Algonquins and Hurons married their nets to two young girls, aged six or seven. At the wedding feast the net was placed between the two maidens, and was exhorted to take courage and catch many fish. The reason for choosing the brides so young was to make sure that they were virgins the origin of the custom is said to have been this. One year, when the fishing season came round, the Algonquins cast their nets as usual, but took nothing. Surprised at their want of success, they did not know what to make of it, till the soul or genius, Aki, of the net appeared to them in the likeness of a tall, well-built man, who said to them in great passion, "'I have lost my wife, and I cannot find one who has known no other man but me. That is why you do not succeed.' and why you never will succeed till you give me satisfaction on this head. So the Algonquins held the council and resolved to appease the spirit of the net by marrying him to two such very young girls that he could have no ground of complaint on that score for the future. They did so, and the fishing turned out all that could be wished. The thing got wind among their neighbours, the Hurons, and they adopted the custom. A share of the catch was always given to the families of the two girls, who acted as brides of the net for the year. The Urauns of Bengal worship the earth as a goddess and annually celebrate her marriage with the sun god Dharma at the time when the shawl tree is in blossom. The ceremony is as follows. All bathe, then the men repair to the sacred grove, Sharna, while the women assemble at the house of the village priest. After sacrificing some fowls to the sun god and the demon of the grove, the men eat and drink. The priest is then carried back to the village on the shoulders of a strong man. Near the village, the women meet the men and wash their feet. With beating of drums and singing, dancing and jumping, all proceed to the priest's house, which has been decorated with leaves and flowers. Then the usual form of marriage is performed between the priest and his wife, symbolizing the supposed union between sun and earth. After the ceremony, all eat and drink and make merry. They dance and sing obscene songs, and finally indulge in the vilest orgies. The object is to move the mother earth to become fruitful. Thus the sacred marriage of the sun and earth, personated by the priest and his wife, is celebrated as a charm to ensure the fertility of the ground, and for the same purpose, on the principle of homeopathic magic, the people indulge in licentious orgy. It deserves to be remarked that the supernatural being to whom women are married is often a god or spirit of water, Thus, Mukasa, the god of the Victoria Nyanza Lake, was propitiated by the Baganda every time they undertook a long voyage. Had virgins provided for him to serve as his wives. Like the Vestals, they were bound to chastity, but unlike the Vestals, they seem to have been often unfaithful. The custom lasted until Mwanga was converted to Christianity. The Akikuyu of British East Africa worshipped the snake of a certain river and at intervals of several years they marry the snake god to women, but especially to young girls. For this purpose, huts are built by order of the medicine men, who there consummate the sacred marriage with the credulous female devotees. If the girls do not repair to the huts of their own accord in sufficient numbers, they are seized and dragged thither to the embraces of the deity. The offspring of these mystic unions appear to be farther than god, Nigai, Certainly there are children among the Akikuyu who pass for children of God. It is said that once, when the inhabitants of Kayeli in Buru, an East Indian island, were threatened with destruction by a swarm of crocodiles, they ascribed the misfortune to a passion which the prince of the crocodiles had conceived for a certain girl. Accordingly, they compelled the damsel's father to dress her in bridal array and deliver her over to the clutches of her crocodile lover. A usage of the same sort is reported to have prevailed in the Maldive Islands before the conversions of the inhabitants to Islam. The famous Arab traveler Ibn Battuta has described the custom and the manner in which it came to an end. He was assured by several trustworthy natives, whose names he gives, that when the people of the islands were idolaters, there appeared to them every month an evil spirit among the jinn, who came from across the sea in the likeness of a ship full of burning lamps, The want of the inhabitants, as soon as they perceived him, was to take a young virgin, and having adorned her, to lead her to a heathen temple that stood on the shore, with a window looking out to the sea. There they left the damsel for the night, and when they came back in the morning, they found her a maid no more, and dead. Every month they drew lots, and he whom upon the lot fell gave up his daughter to the genie of the sea. The last of the maidens thus offered to the demon was rescued by a pious Berber, who by reciting the Quran succeeded in driving the jinni back into the sea. Ibn Batuta's narrative of the demon lover and his mortal brides closely resembles a well known type of folk tale of which versions have been found from Japan and Annam in the east to Senegambia, Scandinavia, and Scotland in the west. The story varies in details from people to people, but as commonly told, it runs thus. A certain country is infested by a many-headed serpent, dragon, or other monster, which would destroy the whole people if a human victim, generally a virgin, were not delivered up to him periodically. Many victims have perished, and at last it has fallen to the lot of the king's own daughter to be sacrificed. She is exposed to the monster, but the hero of the tale, generally a young man of humble birth, interposes on her behalf, slays the monster, and receives the hand of the princess as his reward. In many of these tales, the monster, who is sometimes described as a serpent, inhabits the water of the sea, a lake, or a fountain. In other versions, he is a serpent or dragon who takes possession of the springs of water, and only allows the water to flow or the people to make use of it, on condition of receiving a human victim. It would probably be a mistake to dismiss all these tales as pure inventions of the storyteller. Rather, we may suppose that they reflect a real custom of sacrificing girls or women, be the wives of water spirits, who are very often conceived as great serpents or dragons. End of chapter 12. Recording by Monsbru, Ruslux, Finland.